She's a Doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Dobek, and she's a dietitian. Hey, I'm Hannah Schuyler, and together we are the, the Doctor-Dietitian Collab. Hey, so today we're going to talk about when things don't go as planned. We're going to talk about complications in the short term, right after surgery. And what are some of those things that you might see this long laundry list of potential complications and you sign the consent and you're kind of confused even in what all that medical jargon even means? Well, today we're going to break it down. We're going to tell you your risk and we're going to tell you that for the good news is no worries. A lot of this is super, super, super rare. But if it were to happen to you, what should you do? So we're going to start off and we're going to talk about leaks. We're going to go right back into that. Who's afraid of the big bad leak? That is probably the most dreaded complication that can happen with these. And Hannah, do you know really even what a leak is? That's what I was about to say. I was like, is that like the stomach contents leaking out into like the stomach, the abdominal cavity? Oh my God. Perfectly Did I get it so right? You, you yes. killed it. Very fantastic. So that was awesome. Okay. So with the sleeve, um, refer back to your pictures, but the sleeve has a long staple line. There are typically five firings of some 60 millimeter load. So it basically is one long staple line along the new sleeve stomach. And those staples are incredible. They're made of titanium. They are biocompatible. There's never been like an adverse reaction or uh, allergic reaction. All of that's great. They're safe. They don't absorb. They do get incorporated into the tissue. So if something were to happen, you might get a leak. And like you just described, it was perfect. The things that you put in your mouth that you swallow obviously ultimately become poop. And so your GI tract is dirty. There's different classifications of like cleanliness score. There's clean, then clean contaminated, contaminated, and dirty. So that is dirty things that even if it's up high, it's not quite poop yet, it's still dirty. And if it goes from inside your GI tract and it leaks out into the abdominal cavity, then you could have some issues from that. So I'm going to describe that there is a whole different even ranges of severity of leaks as well. So the typical leak presentation is very, very small. So it's normally like a pinpoint or just a little bit bigger than the tip of a pencil. In fact, sometimes if I go back into the operating room and I try to find a small pinpoint link, even when I'm leak testing it, which is when I clamp it beyond where that little hole is, and I have um, anesthesia or even um, a member of our team insert a tube that will blow as hard as it can to try to put that under pressure – If I see that there's any bubbling into that, then I know that it's not airtight. There's a hole. But a lot of times when these these little tiny pinpoint leaks, you cannot find the leak. So how how do you find it then? Like what's the process to find it and then close like those itsy bitsy ones? So the typical presentation of a patient, they are going to come in is usually two, three, four weeks Mm post-op actually. So it doesn't happen in the early post-op period unless there is a pretty sizable leak or hole that was made. And then the patients get pretty sick, pretty toxic actually, pretty quickly. So if it's a small leak, it's going to happen a couple of weeks after. And the the patients are just kind of like festering in their sickness. They're not like septic or toxic or in multi-system organ failure, but they're, they're having pretty severe abdominal pain and they're probably pretty nauseous. And that pressure and that pain 
will necessitate a CT scan. So the patients will drink contrast and then they'll undergo a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. And we're able to see, is there any extravasation or basically leakage of the contrast into the abdominal cavity? Now, if there is, then that's probably a pretty sizable leak, but sometimes you'll see a fluid collection of basically pus, like an abscess in the abdomen, but you don't you don't really see that. So to answer your question, the way you do that is actually endoscopically. So our GI colleagues, our gastroenterologist colleagues, they can go down into the mouth with a camera. They can go down into the esophagus, which is that tube that sits in your chest, go through the hiatus of the diaphragm, and then they can actually identify an area that's very irritated, swollen, red, and they can kind of see that leak sometimes. They'll do it under the guidance of fluoroscopy, or they, they can insert contrast as well. And what they do is they can put a stent over that area. Okay. So they can like, it's like a covered bridge that will like occlude that. And that allows food from constantly like rubbing past it and making it raw. And it allows it to chill out and heal. And heal itself. Got it. I'm imagining that like tape that's advertised like on TV that like the guy slams on a, like the boat or whatever. <laughs> Like, like a duct tape type of like thing? Like duct tape, but that like super water level? type one. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I wish that we had something like that. Maybe that's the next um, big I'll invention. Invent it. Yeah. You should. And then we won't be doing our podcast anymore. You'll we'll be, be off on some medical island. Medical device. <laughs> yeah. People. You're going to become a medical device person. There is a lot of um, innovation and research and development around how do you minimally invasively and very quickly help with these leaks. So after that, let's say a patient um, has a leak and now we just need everything to heal and then they cannot eat or drink and we give them nutrition through the vein. Can you tell them a little bit about what TPN is? Yeah. So TPN is a total parenteral nutrition. Um, Parenteral, if it's enteral nutrition, that means it's by the gut. If it's parenteral, that means it's in the IV, in the the bloodstream. So um, parenteral nutrition is always used when the gut is unable to be used. Um, If the gut can be used, we use it. That's always the rule when you're feeding people. Uh, So TPN is something, it's basically like a solution, like you would see an IV bag. It's going to be formulated with a certain percentage of carbs, fat, and protein. Um, Fat's usually added separately. It's kind of weird. But um, I haven't dealt with TPN in so long. I'm like trying to even remember it. But it, it basically just provides you that. It's going to give you the minerals, all of those things to, to, to sustain you until that gut is healed. And again, then we would want to, as soon as, as, soon as the healing process is done, we would want to use the gut. And TPN is usually you see it like in the hospitals, but in some cases it can be done like at home or or an outpatient, I guess not outpatient, but like at home. Um, yeah. And they can, and they make it once you, you know, it can be a couple of weeks yeah. while you're not allowed to eat or drink and you have to have this nutrition through the vein and they can do something called night cycle. So that's essentially where the bag just hangs for 12, 13 hours mm-hmm. at night. And then you go about your business during the day. You have a special IV called a pick line. And that's the IV. That's like a central line that goes directly back to the heart. And so it's your peripheral IVs, your peripheral veins can't really handle all of that volume and and sort of the makeup of it. And the fluid is white. Mm -hmm. Why is it white? Because of the fat. Mm. Because it's fat globules in it. 
There you go. So it just, it just got lots of stuff in it. I know it does. It has even beyond that. It's like the perfect little easy thing to get all of your nutrients in there. Every vitamin is checked. Every the oh, labs yeah. are checked frequently because you have to make sure that there's not too much potassium or you know there's a lot of electrolyte balances. Yeah. So there are dietitians who absolutely adore TP, like writing TPN orders. Ooh, it's I know. I hate it. I liked it for a period of time, but the people who do it like for their job day in and day out, I'm like, bless you. Like oh, good I for know. you. I'm glad you love it. But um and there's also like nurses and things that specialize in doing that. But it's all oftentimes managed by the dietitian. And a lot of doctors are just like, please just write these orders. Like I don't want to do like you just did. You're like I don't want to. No, 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 no. I, I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to take no, no, over no, no, that. No, 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 no. So yeah. <laughs> so it's definitely something that like somebody who does that all the time would be they again going to be monitoring it, making sure you're getting the right things and not too much of of any particular item. So that's what you can get so that your nutrition is sustained if you're not eating and drinking. Now with leaks, there's again different sizes, different locations. If it's a gastric bypass, for example, there are three common areas where a leak could occur if it were to occur. Leaks, by the way, there's nothing common about them. So sleeves bypass, they are less than one to two percent of all cases will have a leak if that. And a lot of times, like I said, it's even lower. And so the three places on the bypass are at what we call the gastrojejunostomy or GJ. So this is the place where that little tiny thumb-sized stomach pouch will meet up with the small intestine. And that is the GJ connection. And surgeons do a whole host of different techniques to combine those two, the pouch and the small intestine. They might hand sew it. They might use a stapler. They might use a circular stapler or a linear stapler. So there's lots of techniques. Then there's the bypass stomach. And that was once attached to the stomach pouch. So there is a staple line Half of it went on the pouch and then half of it or three rows went on the bypass stomach. So it could leak there, which would be very unusual, very, very unusual. And that would just be stomach juices then, right? So it would be just digestive juices. I mean, knock on wood, I have never, gosh, I shouldn't even say it. I've never seen a bypass stomach leak in my career. So that would be really, yeah. really bizarre. Um, but it could happen. It's a it's a place where there's a staple line. So it yeah. could, but it's such low pressure, like you're describing. It's not seeing food, so there's not things that are rubbing against it or like distending it or right. blowing it yeah, up. Yeah, it's just kind of hanging out there and doing its own thing. It's doing its own thing. And just for the record, the bypass stomach is not just floating away or shriveling up and dying. People always ask me, what happens to the bypass stomach? It is still very much so functioning to help with the digestive process it's making its stomach or digestive juices that will go downstream. And then the last place is the JJ or jejunojejunostomy. There's a piece of intestine called the jejunum, and that is where the food and drink will meet up with the digestive juices. And again, that looks like the letter Y. And at that connection, that can be a, a more common place for leaks. And sometimes that would even necess- necessitate a surgical intervention, clean everything out, and take out the JJ and make two JJs. It's a lot of stuff. But oh. so so how do you treat these? You can either surgically go in and, and over-sew it or even revise the anastomosis or the connection. Number two, you can go in with GI, gastroenterology, again, and put those stents or try to do some clipping internally if you're a candidate for that in very proximal or high up sleeve leaks. And then finally, you can also use interventional radiology where they can identify the leak or the collection. And then they, under the guidance of a CT scan, under that radiological image, they can actually pop 
a needle into it and drain it that way. So that's actually um, the preferred um, if there's like a collection without anything you know you can do to avoid surgery. You really you really want to try to do right. Are they? Are they ever, is there ever anything like, like antibiotics use kind oh, of yeah. stuff like that? So there's, typically you're going to have to do something to clear the infection. There's medical infections and there's surgical infections. A classic medical infection would be like a urinary tract infection. So you'll take a Bactrim, a Cipro, something like that, medication by mouth, and knocks it out. But then these types, you have to fix the underlying problem okay. or at least drain that contamination. So if you think about having like an abscess on your skin, it's like sort of like a zit. You have to, it hurts so bad. Even there's like, why does this little thing hurt so bad? And then you are having to pop it because you have to get that gunk out, if you will, from the inside out. And okay. so you have to clean it. It's, it's the same philosophies of acne when you're a middle schooler. Um, that's what's coming back for you. Yeah. So the other big complication that people worry about is bleeds. And these can occur either in the GI tract, meaning that you might vomit blood or even pass blood, meaning having a dark bloody bowel movement, which would be like tarry, which means that it's old blood leaving. If it's darker, the better. That means you bled. We know it. Okay. It's done. It's done. Let it out. Or you could have a bright red blood per rectum, and that could be very brisk bleeding. And these two can occur different places. So it can occur at the GJ, the JJ, or the bypass stomach staple line intraluminally or inside the GI tract, or it can occur intraabdominally or into the abdominal cavity. So typically, 99% of the time, bleeds will respond to fluid resuscitation. So if you're bleeding out, you have to replenish your circulating blood volume. So you give patients fluids, they get admitted, you do serial lab checks where you're looking at their blood counter, hemoglobin, and hematocrit. And if they are dropping, you might need to resuscitate with blood products. Typically, if you were to get blood, you would get two units of packed red blood cells. And then the third thing is if it's bleeding briskly enough, you might need to intervene either surgically to try to stop it or through uh, GI again where they can go in. But it's really tricky because sometimes you get in there and you can't find it and they wake up and they're vomiting blood again. And it's like, ah, like I oversewed everything. Like I, I, I don't know why they're still bleeding. It's super, super rare, you guys. So don't panic about that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and so with that, it's, you know, is there anything that a patient can do to help kind of prevent those things from happening or, you know, if, if you're worried about bleeding, like what what can they what can people do to kind of help prevent that from happening? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can do. Well, okay, for bleeds, there's nothing you can do. Okay. Nothing you can do at all. If it happens, people are like, oh, was it because I twisted or did that motion? I like slept on my side instead of on my back. Listen, guys, there's nothing physically that you can do to really mess this up. So you can still bend. You can pick things up. Of course, listen to your own practices recommendations. But if you need to pick up your child, your grandchild, your pet, a box, and you feel like you can do it, for the most part, you probably can. Leaks, on the other hand, there is something substantial that if you do it, you could rip up this anastomosis or this staple line or this even I hand sew my um, gastrojejunostomy. And so that's just a little suture. And that is not obeying the diet progression, not being compliant or adherent with those rules that we lay out. And I know every program is different, but can you tell patients sort of what what is the diet progression that you typically recommend and why are you doing that? 
Yeah. So we start with a liquid diet for that first week after surgery. And again, when we're talking about feeding the gut, again, we want to feed the gut as much as possible, but you just had surgery in there. And even though you have these like cute little like outside, you know, uh, stitches, like inside much more happened. And so, yeah, we want to think about liquid is just going to go through so much more easily. It's going to transit through. It's not going to have the fiber in it. It's not going to have that bulk in it that's going to kind of cause any roughness. So um, with that liquid, I will also add the caveat of please don't drink caffeine Mm -hmm. um, or do like really acidic products because those can cause issues. Caffeine and coffee itself, even decaf coffee, are stomach irritants. So like just be kind to your little stomach after surgery. So we're going to do that liquid. Then we're going to move on to the puree diet, which is like the baby food, mashed potato consistency, um, you know, very, very, very finely um, shredded kind of protein products, whatever. Um, And and again, that's going to be soft. You're not going to have any like hard edges on your food. We want to make sure that everything is just like mush. Then you'll go on to a soft diet and that's kind of that fork tender uh, diet. So, you know, get become best friends with your pressure cooker, uh, you know, deli meats, things again that are very naturally very soft. Uh, and still, you're probably still not going to be getting a whole lot of fiber at any of this point, um, which can be a double-edged sword because obviously we want to keep things moving through. We don't want that pressure. We don't want you straining or doing anything like in the bathroom, but um, just doing that and also just keeping really well hydrated through all of that to help everything move through. We're just trying to keep Keep it moving. Oh. Uh, and, and that's really it. And then you get to go on to regular texture food. Exactly. Now, what is your recommendations or thoughts on raw vegetables? So raw veggies, we're going to wait even longer. And yes. things like apples, like really crunchy, crispy kind of things, six weeks or so. Let's let's give it some time. Again, we want to rest everything. We don't want those like jagged edges. Like raw broccoli, you may never have mm. like Again, it's just so rough. It's Ugh. so hard to digest. I mean, even if you haven't had bariatric surgery, like it's yeah, just guys. hard to digest. And also, like I don't know, it gives you gas. It's not comfortable. It's not. And I'll tell you, I've even had patients say, "Well, I blended it up." I'll tell you what, I've had some issues when patients will reincorporate raw broccoli too early. I've had patients where it kind of got stuck, and when something gets stuck, ooh, how would you describe the way the patients describe that sensation? Well, I, I mean, stuck is usually kind of that word, but it's that like painful. It's usually like uh, both of us are sitting here like touching our, <laughs> touching us as if you guys can see us. But it's usually like in that sternum, yes. kind of like the the um, bra line area, yes. right where right where the food is going to enter from the esophagus into the stomach. Um, and it can be painful. It can just be like then they feel full. They don't feel like eating. Like it just is this whole triggering kind of spiral of like just something is in there. It's like if you, you can't spit it out. You can't maybe throw it up. You might try. It just is like it's just blocked. And it can be really uncomfortable. Um, totally. Papaya enzymes is usually what we recommend to to help move that along. Yes. So everybody remember this. If you haven't had surgery and if you have, you might be able to relate to it and hopefully you'll never experience it. And if you do, you'll only have this happen to you once. It's if you eat too fast, too much, 
or something too solid, you don't chew it thoroughly enough, and then, ooh, boy, and it can cause the most intense pain. I believe that there is some component of esophageal spasming to try to like peristalsis or push it through. It sits there heavy. It causes like kind of this like regurgitation or reflux kind of sensation with your saliva. And even once it finally pops through, like, okay, I have a little bit of relief, and you're kind of like rubbing like you said on your sternum there, it will still remain like tender or like gastritis, irritation, the lining of that stomach pouch for even longer. So here's the deal. If you feel like something's stuck, stop consuming anything. Do not drink anymore. Don't try to wash it down. Ain't going to work. You're going to vomit the the liquids. Don't try to swallow food to pop it down. It's going to come back up as well. It's going to hurt worse. Don't put anything else in your mouth except the papaya enzymes. I know some patients who I trust and are very legitimate people. And I know it's sort of this weird thing, but I do think it increases your like salvation or your digestive enzymes and juices and it will help to pop that bad boy down. Well, and the actual papaya enzyme itself is a digestive, has digestive properties. So that's why it works. Like it, it dissolves the food down. (laughs) Well, guys, this isn't just some bogus thing that some patient came up with. There is actually science behind papaya enzyme. Where can you get that anywhere? You can find it on Amazon. You can go to um, GNC has it. I think even like Walgreens, Walmart. Walmart. Yeah. Just walk in, get some on hand. Hopefully you'll have your little stash, that little tiny bottle. Don't buy too much. And keep it around with you wherever you go because you never know when you'll have this. Or you can wait it out or you can even try to vomit too. Yeah. That's that's I know that's not pleasant. Nobody likes to vomit, gosh, but that's something that you can do. Now, I would also recommend that once it finally again it kind of goes through, you don't eat or drink anything for the rest of the day or night, the next day back down to just like full liquids for a couple of days. Is that what you recommend? Yeah, I would say if anybody's really especially if it's happened more than once, it's like let's let's give everything a break. Again, we want to like just be really kind to that little GI tract. Like it's gone through a lot. And so like like you said, you might have some irritation in that in the esophagus. Um, your body's going to be fighting against that. We don't want anything to get infected or more inflamed or anything like that. So yeah, take it easy. Step back. Like you said, do some liquids or even maybe puree, depending on kind of how you're feeling. Um, Take those little tiny bean-sized bites and, you know, be like a maniac chewing Mm. um, and and just be really careful and and really – sensitive on that. Yes, go slow. And then you're going to learn your fullness triggers as well. So in the beginning, it's like a whole new world. You're not used to like that whole Thanksgiving Day fullness after like a couple of bites. Fullness triggers might also be increased saliva because it's just like, oh, I'm trying to digest this quickly. Like this is a lot in here. So you might get like a foaming at the mouth, if you will, kind of like, or you feel like you're going to spit or you might might sneeze. And um, that's again, all that like extra secretion saliva. So a little pro tip, if in the early period, more common um, types of things that might happen are dehydration and nausea and vomiting. So vomiting after the gastric bypass, if it's bile, it's never normal. It's always a surgical emergency. If you're vomiting bile after a gastric bypass, it's a surgical emergency because that means there's an obstruction downstream and everything is backing up up through that bypassed portion of the small intestine that makes the bile, or at least that goes down that way, and then it goes back, it makes like a UE, and it's coming back Mm -hmm. up. So that means there's like a kink at probably the JJ. And so that's an issue you never want to ignore. And bile is like lime green. 
It's like, lime right? green, but sometimes it can be like a yellowish or yellow. Too. Like if it's that, if it's in that family. Yes. Yeah. And you didn't have anything with color. You only yeah. had water like a day ago and you're vomiting something with color. Go to the ER, call, call us, call your surgeon immediately. Now, when it comes to nausea, after the sleeve especially, sometimes it happens after the bypass. Sometimes people are sensitive to the anesthesia. So it might be just the first few hours or a day or so. Sometimes it's just, ooh, the sleeve can can cause a lot of like regurgitation. Things are just sitting there. People will say like, I feel like when I drink something with temperature, like I can feel where it is. Like even I can feel it going through my diaphragm's hiatus. I can feel it like at the top part of my stomach. And then it kind of like sits there and I feel so nauseous. Yeah. What would you say are your favorite nausea tips in that early period to kind of get through that tough phase? Yeah, a lot of people say that with plain water is annoyingly the thing that causes it, like anything without any kind of flavor or additive in it. So trying something with some flavor, if that's the case, I hear it a lot of times that water feels heavy Mm. on their chest. Um, And so trying, you know, the crystal lights, the little flavor droplets like Mio or any of those, uh, sometimes that can really make a big difference. Changing the temperature can make a really big difference. So if you're, you know, I'm an ice water kind of person, but that may be, you know, we think about cold kind of causes that constriction that may not work for you. It may feel kind of painful. So maybe trying room temperature or even warm beverages. Yes. But then on the flip side, some people are like, my saving grace is sugar-free popsicles and i'm like if you can get down sugar-free popsicles then because i think it helps that it drips down the throat versus being a sip so like sugar-free popsicles sucking on ice you know kind of like you would in like a recovery room they're going to give you that versus like water you're not probably not getting the air in like you might with drinking um herbal teas can be really nice super soothing um like a ginger tea you know, kind of get that kind of double impact of the warmth of because, again, warm is then going to be relaxing. Mm-hmm. The ginger can can help with the nausea. Um, so those. Yeah, I would say those temperatures are usually the number one thing that I recommend, like just trying because it's easy to do, too. Like you can go try different temperatures of of liquids pretty, pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I think that's phenomenal tips, guys. You, you've you got to see, like, sometimes room temperature water, like plain water, is so nauseating. It's just like, I cannot do it. So you might, like Hannah said, ice cold, or you can even try to add things like Crystal Light that's sugar-free or the Propel. I love Propel. Oh, yeah. Or even Gatorade Zero, Powerade Zero, Vitamin Water Zero. Try your best to do just zero. I'm going to give another tip um, that you might just need to get over the hump. So don't take this as liberty for the rest of your life. This is a short term, just like, okay, I cannot take this. Sometimes you're nauseous because you are ketotic. Mm-hmm. And you need a little bit of sugar, a little bit of carbs, really, to do that. Can you describe like the phenomenon of ketosis and why that can make you feel lousy or make you feel actually kind of manically good? Yeah, well, a lot of people describe it as that like keto flu. So especially in those first two days, you're probably naturally going to go into ketosis because especially if you're just drinking protein shakes that have three grams of carb in them each or whatever, like, yeah, you're going to go into ketosis. And it's it's the shift in your body of changing how it's producing, how it's creating energy. It's shifting from 
um, using like carbs as the source to using your fat stores as your source. And so you may feel like you'll get really bad breath is mm. one of the sim- symptoms of ketosis. Um, like I said, you feel fluy, weak, nausea, all of that kind of stuff is really common to hear when you when you kind of enter that ketosis. Like you said, a lot of people kind of get through it and come out the other end and they're like, I love living in ketosis. Like yes. it works really well for me. I'm not a huge fan of the keto diet or living in ketosis. Like it just, it's not sustainable. Um, if you want me to get up on my soapbox for one <laughs> yes, second. Preach, girl. The keto diet was originally designed to treat children with epilepsy who didn't respond to medication. Hmm. They figured out, somebody figured out, if you put these kids on this high-fat, very low-carb diet, it can help to manage their epileptic episodes. And um, in addition to whatever medications are working or, or not working, sometimes it's the the only thing. And usually it's a period of time. Sometimes they'll kind of grow out of, of it and that won't work. And usually it's mostly using kids. I think some epileptic adults use it. But I worked at a camp that served kids with epilepsy and to see what they had to eat to be in keep like to, to actually have the keto diet, like no one wants to be on that. And it's not something we should strive to. So that's always been my rub on it because I'm like, you have taken the fact that it makes you lose weight because of this other metabolic process and made it mainstream and made it seem acceptable, but they don't do it right. I'm like, if you're feeding these to these kids who actually need a keto diet, it would mess them up because you have too many carbs. Like, wow. So it's it's my like little frustration with it. Um, plus, again, I just don't think it's sustainable in the long run. You know, no. when we cut out all of that too low, obviously we do recommend a low carb diet. I'm not going to sit here and say we don't. True. But not to that level. Again, it may happen immediately after surgery. So, and the way we get out of ketosis is we have sugar. You have some carb. And like you said, maybe it's some of the the real Gatorade, uh, a little bit of apple juice. Maybe it's watered down just so you don't make yourself feel yeah. like you can go too far to the other side, right. especially with a liquid sugar, you know, like a drink is going to always cause that blood sugar to spike more quickly. It might, if you have the bypass, it might cause the dumping. Like we don't want that either. So watch how much you do. But, you know, to come out of ketosis is to have some carb. And that might make you feel a lot better. It does. And so I will even tell people, like, suck on, like, a Ritz cracker mm-hmm. or Cheetos or, like, Cheez-Its. And I, I would tell people, like, who just cannot get past. Like, we try, like, first, we, there's medications. There's tons of medications. There's scopolamine patches. Those are the ones that go behind your ear that you might use for motion sickness. For our patients, before surgery, every single one, we use that. And then there's ones like um, Zofran, which is an ODT, or in other words, it dissolves underneath the tongue. So we give prescriptions for that. When you're in the hospital, we can give you things in the IV, like Zofran, like Reglan, metoclopramide, um, promethazine. There's lots and lots of different things for nausea meds. If none of that is working, you also might have some secretions or excess saliva like we talked about. So you might want to use like Flonase or Claritin because if you find yourself being what I call a spitter, then you'll end up like you're constantly like spitting in a bag or in a cup or something. It sounds gross. And it, and it is and that like even just the act of it, like you're watching yourself like, oh, my God, I'm spitting in this bag and that bag is filled with spit and it's nasty. Like you're in this like vicious cycle. So take something to dry up all of that secretions up there. Little fun fact, when I was pregnant, 
I was a spitter and I would constantly have to like spit and I and I never understood the phenomenon of these people coming back in with these bags and just spinning and I was like there what is wrong and I'm like oh my gosh I'm one so I wrote this nausea guide and some of you have seen it or know about it it's 16 points the last one being just fake it till you make it sometimes and get past it this too shall pass of course there could be something wrong so we always you know call us we'll help you we'll troubleshoot it if it seems like, eh, let's get some imaging study, an x-ray, an upper GI swallow study, a CT scan, something like that. But once we rule things out, it's just, again, learning your new stomach and just trying to get, trying to just get over that hump. It can be hard. And, And it can. And I see people struggling with it all the time. You know, they're just like, I just, I just can't, I just feel full after two sips, or I'm just nauseated all the time or any of that. And a lot of times then, you know, we'll follow back up with them a week later, two weeks later, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm great. Like, I'm fine. I feel good. It just, it it went away. Like, it, it's a process for sure. Um, so as far as any other complications, so we've kind of hit on, we did leaks. We said there's the bleeds. Then there's kind of this dehydration, nausea, like symptomatic kind of things. Any other complications that you that are common or not common, but that happen? Yeah, you know, a big one is um, blood clots. So you could get a blood clot in your legs. It's called a deep venous thrombosis or a DVT. And then in a very scary situation, that blood clot from your leg can actually travel up through the venous system and end up in the veins of your heart. It's called a pulmonary embolism or PE. And that can be life-threatening. It can be that serious. The best thing you can do is to have that expectation I need to wake up and stand up and walk. The earlier I walk, the more I walk, the better and the faster my recovery. We know it. Walk, walk, walk. Yes, that will help to kind of alleviate that gas pressure or pain in the left upper quadrant. But it also can literally save your life because walking is what really truly prevents the blood clots. So just so that you know you're going to have these things on your legs, they're called um, SCDs, sequential compression devices. They kind of, and I guess and if you squint your eyes hard enough, you might think, oh, I'm at the spa, kind of like they they sequentially or like intermittently will like compress your legs. So they'll be on and they'll be functioning. We'll have those things turned on and already squeezing away before you undergo anesthesia. So those things will be on your legs. You climb up on the OR table. They work the entire time. The SCD machine, if if it turns off, there's actually an alarm that will blare because it has to stay on. Because if it doesn't, you could get a blood clot. And then after surgery, most importantly, you have that expectation that within an hour of the completion of the procedure, you need to be up and moving around. So that's just so important. And while you're awake, you keep moving around. Mm -hmm. Now, when you are sleeping or resting at night, you can always sleep. You don't have to have somebody wake you up or set an alarm to walk every hour. Rest is super important, but walking is really, really critical. So DVTs and PEs are scary. Also, a a lesser known thing, which happens sometimes, typically in white skin, is an adverse reaction to the prep. So we clean your abdomen with this chlorhexidine kind of orange solution. And some people get like some pretty irritated skin from that in the kind of like we, we go all the way like right above your kind of like waistline and then we go to right below your breastline. And so that whole like square that's prepped off, that can get really angry, really, really angry. Also on white skin, the tape over the IV, when you take it off, you could see like such an irritation like to the adhesive. Hmm. I have it. You probably have it too. I've never had an IV. 
Well, when you do have that baby, um, <laughs> since you're buried and we need to ask Hannah now, um, when are you going to have that baby? Um, she's not pregnant, guys. I'm not trying to start anything. But um, but you'll see that. The, I, I, I mean, this is TMI. But I'll tell you what. The IV site hurt worse than like the rest of my body after giving birth. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. It hurts so bad. But anyway, so the tape can be a sensitive thing. So just kind of be t- careful when you take it off. It still might be irritated. And then there's always like lesser things like um, wound infections especially the a common culprit site might be the um to the right of the umbilicus or belly button there that's where i will pull out i pull out that uh 75 80% of stomach and because i'm pulling out it something that's it doesn't rip or anything, but if, since it's kind of clean contaminated, I wash out that area copiously. But once in a while, you can get a little irritation or some erythema or redness around there. So you might get a wound infection. It's pretty rare. I'm not going to wood. I haven't really had to open up any of them. It's like, it doesn't form like a real big abscess. That would be mm-hmm. very uncommon. But you could get little irritation around yeah. that one as yeah. well. I want to. Oh, I just want to go back to something. When you say walk after surgery, yes, we're meaning like walk around your home. I think people hear that, and <laughs> I, I, know I have saying. people. They're like, "It's one day after surgery, and I couldn't walk all the way around my neighborhood." And it's like that's not what we meant to walk to your counter. Like go from your couch to to the other room and back. <laughs> Some of you guys, oh my god, I have had. It's like again, it goes back to this. Like I need to be prepared. I need to be the best. I'm a type A overachiever. Here I come. Watch this. I got my tennis shoes. I'm not wearing those hospital anti-grip socks. I'm going to be going out there, you know, and just hitting the pavement. I've had people send me their like Apple watches or their like, you know, whatever Fitbit devices that show like I hit 10 miles dock day of surgery, like crazy numbers of steps, tens of thousands of steps. Like I'm walking it out. I'm like, calm down. You're about to collapse, bro. Like this is like you just underwent a general anesthetic. Listen, these surgeries, there is, these are a big deal. Like, yes, we can do them efficiently. The sleeve is about 20 to 30 minutes. The bypass is about 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, that's great. You're in and you're out and these are outpatients. It all sounds great. But it's still like, if you're like, man, I'm wiped out. That means you're normal, my friends. You are yeah. normal. Rest, recover, rejuvenate yourselves. Yeah. So yeah, we don't mean walk around the around the block. Oh gosh! Walk around the house. Walk around the couch <laughs> until you get, like even just like like uh, from from where you're sitting to the wall. Like that's okay at first, but then as you're like, I'm feeling pretty good. Like, sure, go for it. It's there's no restrictions. Oh there. yeah, yeah. When you feel better, but I think people like you said, people are just like gung ho <laughs> and they're like they're going. I'm like no 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. I also stand think, up. <laughs> I think there's some sort of like almost unsaid competition between some of you guys, like where someone's like, oh, I just had surgery and then I went to the mall and then I went and I. I walked, you know, 10 miles and then I, I did all the laundry and I painted my entire house um, inside and out. Like, whoa. And like, oh, you didn't feel well. Well, then there's something wrong with you. And it's like, you're at home recovering. That's remarkable in and of itself. Like, yeah. so have that into a perspective that like, you don't have to be like, I had no pain. First of all, you're probably lying because I mean, you're going to have incisional soreness. You're going to have gas pressure. It's it's no joke. It is a lot of pressure, especially in that left upper quadrant. It's just a lot of pressure up there. So it's not a competition, my loves. It's not. It's not. It's not at all. But I think um, those are some of the main things that you would be signing for. And then the last couple of things are, of course, you could always have a heart attack, a stroke, knock on wood. We get clearances. And that's another thing that is super, super rare because our patients, these are elective. And so they're pretty optimized. And we do a lot of surveillance and we have a lot of amazing 
patient selection criteria and, and clinical pathways and what we call enhanced recovery or early recovery after bariatric surgery, ERAS or ERAS with a B in it. And those really, I feel like, help to mitigate those. Again, of course, anything can happen, but I do tell people you're probably more likely to have a risk of getting in a car accident or having something on the way to the hospital than you do statistically speaking on the OR table. Right, right. And it's uh, those risks that you just mentioned, like that's with any surgery. Anything. You know, anytime. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it is an anesthetic. So, you know, there's a lot to think about. But for the most part, I hope that you feel like, okay, if the worst case scenario happens, my surgeon will be there. They will fix it. I am empowered by knowledge, even Dr. Google, and I will figure this out. And if you think something is wrong, you must let us know. Call 911. Go to the ER. Always, always be an advocate for yourself. You know your bodies. And that is the most critical thing in recognizing complications and treating them and diagnosing them early. Yep. Always call. Always Don't call. Don't hesitate. That's that's what your team is for. Exactly. No matter where you're at, near, far, wherever you are, whether you're one of our patients or someone else, you are at a comprehensive center, and um, that's our job. You're not bothering us 24 hours a day. Yep. We are. We're going to be, you know, there to help you. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I believe we uh, will follow this up with some long-term complications um, in another episode. So these were the short-term complications, potential complications, like we said, very low risk um, of them, but things you may that may or may happen after um, bariatric surgery. So again, always follow back up with us. Any questions, suggestions, anything else you want to hear about, check us out on Instagram at Dr. X Dietitian, and we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Have a great day. Bye, guys. Bye.